This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. So this is it, the beginning of the end. We begin the strange and hazy, lazy final third of inherent vice today. Speaking of threes, today's is the only scene in which the film's three principles come together in real time. Doc Sportello, Bigfoot Bjornsson, and one not-so-missing Shasta Faye Hepworth to kick off the film's most difficult and inscrutable scene, one which we'll explore in today's episode and the next. Hey, give us a break. It's a heavy sequence, okay? As has been said on this show so many times before, for all the elegant symmetries and similarities between Thomas Pinchon's novel Inherent Vice and Paul Thomas Anderson's film adaptation, and there are very, very many similarities, there are also crucial, crucial differences. The most crucial being, in my opinion, the fact that the novelist Pinchon's caustically furious and coldly funny look back over his shoulder in anger at the failure of his own counterculture to recognize the rot inserted within by forces both internal and external. PTA's film, however, backgrounds so much of that Byzantinian plotting and conspiranoid wandering to focus simply on character, 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 and how much the uninsurable inherent vice of time can take from those characters. And in the words of the director himself, just how much they can miss somebody. And three of those characters, the central characters all collide in today's scene and today's scene only. And speaking of characters, it is my honor to have today's guest aboard the show, a man who in December of 2014 wrote a listicle for Rolling Stone called The Masters, the 30 best Paul Thomas Anderson actors in which he ranked his favorite performers and their characters in PTA's films. And in true Inherent Vice fashion, he embedded piecemeal and hidden within that list his entire review of the film Inherent Vice, which you can only find by grouping each of his graphs about Inherent Vice performers together like some kind of film criticism Rosetta Stone. Which is pretty clever, since that's perhaps the best possible way to watch this film, by tracking these characters within the hazy sea of the rest of the piece that they find themselves in. And if everyone, including him, will indulge me for a moment, I'm going to read from that list his cataloging of the characters who come together in today's scene. As Bigfoot, the dirty, hairy-like cop who proves to be an unwelcome foil for our hero in Inherent Vice, Josh Brolin is an unnerving blend of menace and hilarity. Yes, he's an aggressive beast who's fond of trampling the law, but he also gets some of the film's funniest lines, Moro Panakeku. Bigfoot isn't just a character, he's a force of nature, consuming Japanese pancakes, frozen chocolate-covered bananas, scotch, bags of weed, you name it. In Vice's vision of Nixon's America, he comes to embody the cross-section between law and order at all costs and our need for unbridled consumption. 
the fact that Brolin can pull off a character with such heavy symbolic import and still make him curiously touching is nothing short of a miracle. Catherine Waterston doesn't have that big a part in Heron Vice. She's AWOL for most of the movie. But as Doc Sportello's former lover, Shasta, she has to do a deceptive amount of heavy lifting. And hers is the true breakout performance of the film. Her first performance is tender, yet haunted, suggesting something is wrong. When her character initially disappears, the memory of that early scene persists. When Doc later sees her in a flashback to a better time, she's vibrant, beautiful, the very picture of the innocent first flush of love. When she reappears near the end, however, we sense that something has changed, that this beautiful woman has seen and done things that we can't quite imagine. The actress then delivers an impossibly seductive monologue about how invisible and powerless she felt in her rich businessman's boyfriend's presence. That's one of the most unsettling scenes Anderson has ever shot. In Inherent Vice, Joaquin Phoenix is a loser of a different kind, a tripped out, lovesick, paranoid private eye who investigating his ex-girlfriend's disappearance stumbles upon what might be a terrifying yet vague conspiracy. But the character is more than just a funky, pensionesque collection of ticks. Rather, he's a figure who is at constant mercy of his impulses. He can't resist any offer of sex or drugs. There's a universality to both these performances in The Master and Vice that suggests that Phoenix is portraying not just a very specific character, but also a whole category of messed up American male. God, okay. It's a lot to work with. <laughs> and so, ladies and gentlemen, a man whose work you can find all over the internet, from the aforementioned Rolling Stone, to the Village Voice, to Vulture, the kind of film critic like previous guests, Kim Morgan, Matt Zoller Seitz, and Walter Chaw, whose writing on film is just as satisfying and deep and moving and penetrating as the movies themselves, and one of only two Increment Vice guests to have gone toe-to-toe with Michael Mann in an interview, <laughs> please welcome Mr. Bilga Abiri. Wow. Well, we, gotta, we, gotta, we gotta let him wake up, because I think he might have fallen asleep while I was reading. <laughs> Nice to be here. Wow, that's quite an introduction. Yeah, well, you know, you deserve it. Why not? Why not? Why not? You're nice enough to come on this show, which I told you is about the nerdiest possible thing that you could do right now. I mean, it's an Inherit Vice podcast. You're nice enough to give me your time. I'm going to make you feel welcome, make you feel special. That's not to say that those things aren't true. Those are, I, I am still in awe, and I don't know that you intended it as such, but that Rolling Stone list in which you, categorized 30 of your favorite actors and their performances in his films uh, you did it you you embedded a full-on film review that you have to piece together by grouping like doc when he's writing on the side of his bar in his, in his house in his little bungalow it's the only way to get a bilga abiri inherent vice review is to piece those things together and you better believe my obsessive ass did exactly that <laughs> That was intentional. I mean, I did intend to do that. I'm trying to remember the exact circumstances in which I decided to do it. It wasn't like, you know, nobody assigned that. I mean, they assigned me the list, but um, sure. But I think it was partly because I wanted to review the film at the time. You know, I mean, you know, 
having spent many years as like a second string or a third string or sometimes fourth string critic, you don't always get to review the big movies. So you have to come up with creative ways to, come, you know, insert your reviews and your opinions <laughs> into other uh, somewhat le less noble forms of journalism, <laughs> like listicles. <laughs> but I think in this one, it, it made sense to do it that way. Um, well, let me just yeah. say, you are the Thomas Pinchon of the Rolling Stone listicle, all right? You did it just like our pal Tom would have done. And, and I salute you for that. It's actually quite, it's, it, it's a very, like, it's a very entertaining read. You're, I feel like you're saying listicle like a pejorative, but it's, it's actually a great read. Those, those were fun lists to do. I still sometimes do lists. I mean, I, I'm full-time now at Vulture and New York Magazine, so any lists I do now will be there. But I do, I really did enjoy doing those lists. I still enjoy doing them when I get the chance. Um, the thing about it is that I, I liked it when I could have time to do it. So, you know, if a, if, a, if a list was assigned to me six months in advance or something, then I could spend the next, you know, however many days just watching and rewatching all the movies that I had to assess. This sure. one was, this one I didn't have that kind of time, but I had been rewatching his films. Um, so like I came to it fresh and, you know, I had, I had the ideas in my head. It was fun to do, you know? So, I take it that you are in that very precious minority of which I call myself a member, and that is the person who more or less loved Inherent Vice from the start. You're one of those, right? You're one of us. I am one of those. I am one of those. I mean, I, I wasn't, I, I, when I saw it, I remember, I, I definitely, I loved it. Um, I didn't entirely know what I had seen, <laughs> you know, like I did have that kind of puzzled reaction that a lot of other people did, but the puzzled reaction for me, I felt like, I think that's the movie. Like, I, I think that's like, I, I, I am supposed to feel this way about this movie and I love this feeling. Um, but also I was, you know, I mean, I'm also, you know, also a big fan of Pynchon's writing. So, um, so I had some sense that, you know, we weren't going to get a typical movie. I mean, that would have, a, a conventionally satisfying film made from a Thomas Pynchon novel would be quite possibly the most disappointing thing I could find. <laughs> right? I mean, if like, if we got an inherent vice that was just like this incredibly suspenseful, hard hitting, like, you know, perfectly cut, perfectly executed, you know, noir, you know, um, thriller, I mean, it wouldn't be inherent vice, right? It would almost be more confusing I yeah. think to get something like that than to get what we got. Right. Which everyone else says is incredibly confusing. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. you so you loved it. Now yeah. did did you had you read the book going in? So this is the thing I'm trying to remember. I read the book right around that time. I think I read it right before I saw the film. It's possible I read it right after I saw the film. Um, but I read it right around that time. I was a huge Pinchon fan in like high school and college and immediately afterwards which was a long time ago um and you know and i remember like i mean i was you know a couple of years out of college when mason and dixon came out and i i was i was in um i was working on a film set in russia actually russia and um the czech republic at the time and i remember i had my old roommate like buy a copy and send it to me this was you know 97 um and I remember sitting in the lobby of that hotel every morning before we went uh, to set, like reading Mason and Dixon. And, um, 
and so like so I was always kind of obsessed with his work but then like this 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 run and of course I might just be uh, I might be sort of compressing time in the way that you know us middle-aged people sometimes do but I, I feel like there was this sort of period when you know Thomas Pynchon novels came out a, a little more frequently <laughs> than they had before. Yeah. And so th during that time, I, I read Against the Day. I hadn't read um, Inherent Vice yet. I still haven't read Bleeding Edge. Um, but then like when the movie was on its way, I was like, oh, I gotta read Inherent Vice. Um, so, so the book was, you know, the book I read right around that time. Well, then my next question, you might not be able to totally answer this if you can't remember the order in which it happened, but if you had read it beforehand, do you feel like when you did first see it and you, and you are one of those people that loved it, were you able to love it because you understood it or were you able to love it in spite of how confused you were at it? Because that's been the other thing is there have been people like Matt Zoller Sykes. He was talking about how he walked out of that movie and the second he walked out of the theater, he could not remember the plot whatsoever. He had no memory of it. And, he had, and he's like, when I did remember, when, I, when he was watching it, he had no idea what the plot was. He just loved the characters in the mood. Then there's been other people like Kim Morgan who will wa who walked out of that movie. Like she was like, I totally understood it. I, I, I understood the plot. I got what was happening and I loved it for that. And I loved it for those characters. This is why I think I read the book right before I saw the movie, because I remember having this reaction. Um, that opening shot, not actually, it's not the opening shot because the opening shot is the, 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 the stairs and the sea. But the, oh, the, then the shot of um, Joanna Newsom, um, you know, speaking the opening lines of the book. Yeah. Um, that's when I knew the movie was going to be very different than the book. Because, and, but, but, also, but also like what the movie was doing that was different than the book, which is, you know, Pynchon's style to me has always been so unbelievably controlled. I mean, you know, he's, he's an incredible writer, obviously these Baroque sentences that, you know, tw twist this way and that, and, and yet make perfect sense if you actually sit down and like, you know, kind of trace them out. Yeah. Um, but like, there's this incredible sense of control in his, in his writing. And in that sense, I've always thought of his writing as being, and, and this is something that probably he gets dinged for a little bit now, but there's something very sort of I want to say aggressive and masculine about his writing, about his style. Um, and the idea that the opening shot of the film would be um, a woman saying those, those words in this very kind of sort of weird, gentle, meandering, ethereal way. I was like, this is a complete reversal of how I imagine Pynchon's language working. And yet it's the exact same words. And this movie has just already done something so wild with with that language and with the form of that language, and and so like just with that suddenly I was like okay this is going to be a completely different experience and you know the film is in many ways I think fairly faithful to the book I mean more yeah, faithful it is. than I, think I would have I would have imagined, um, and but but the, tonally it's so different from the book. Um, you know, the book is so dark and so kind of twisted and, and, and bitter and, and, and weird and, you know, I mean, it's a lovely book. Um, and the film is so like weirdly gentle and um, ethereal and meandering in a way that doesn't feel controlled where like anything can happen. And 
I mean, every time I see it, I feel like something else is going to happen. Like, I never feel like I'm watching the same movie. I feel like, oh, you know, maybe in this scene, this other guy will show, you know, like, um, there, there's no sense that I'm watching the same movie because it just feels like anything is possible. And that's what I sort of love about revisiting the film. And that is something that I was so surprised by in doing this show. You know, I thought I, I, you know, I was arrogant enough to think I had my arms around this movie and that I had seen it enough and I was obsessed with it enough going in that I knew what this movie was about. And, I, and yet what's been so great for me and kept me interested, I don't know about anybody else, but it's kept me interested in, uh, in the process of doing this show is how every single time I'll talk to a new guest, I'm seeing this film through their eyes and I'm seeing a totally different movie than the one I fell in love with. Sometimes it's a darker film, sometimes it's a funnier film, sometimes it's a sadder film, sometimes it's a, le it's a lesser film, sometimes it's somehow impossibly a better film than I thought it was. And that there is, there is that feeling of chaos to it. Uh, I, uh, a previous guest, a buddy of mine, uh, writer Ethan Warren, said that there, uh, he defined this movie as like madcap naturalism. It was <laughs> the only way he knew how to define the film and the style of the film. And I think, and I think he's right, and I think you are too. And that's something that um, I believe it was Josh Brolin who, who who spoke of this most explicitly of anyone in the cast and crew. He defined the filming of this movie. His exact words were "absolute fucking chaos." Was how mm. he described the set of this film. That there was nothing. That that there was no there there were no rules, and that the only goal of the day was to make every scene work by any means necessary with no adherence to the script, if that is what the tone called for, if they were doing something. And he talks about how they would be shooting the Moto Panikeku scene. And he's like, you know, in the, in, the, in the script, it's just several pages of exposition. And he's like, there would be a take where Paul would just say, don't say anything, just start hitting him the whole scene. Communicate everything you're supposed to communicate, but via a beating. And just, we'll see how that works, just to see. And maybe that'll be the take. Obviously, it wasn't, but that's yeah. there's that energy to the film where I once compared this film to someone to bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Now, let me and I'll explain because I, I know that that immediately sounds, but no, that makes perfect sense actually. <laughs> I, I would say, I will. Well, I mean, they are both, I think, tales of bruised and battered love and, and kind of holding a mirror up to a certain type of, uh, of masculinity and watching it wither. But what I meant by that was. Well, with Peck and Paul, I think it was accidental. With with PT, I think it is purposeful. Something that makes Alfredo Garcia feel a little dangerous when you watch it is you are feeling a director losing control of his skills because of his excesses. And you can feel the transmission of the film beginning to slip out of gear. And, 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 and you can feel Peck and Paul's artistic transmission beginning to slip out of gear. The, you know, miraculously, the film stays between the ditches the whole time, but it always feels like it's about to go off. And I think purposefully, PTA fostered an energy like that for Inherent Vice. I think he did it purposely where it feels like we're slipping out of gear and at any moment, this whole endeavor is gonna collapse under the weight of its excesses and its unpredictability and its, its too big heart. And that, in addition to a heaping helping of Jonathan Demi styled warmth and empathy for the characters is what I do, I, I, I think separates this from the book. It's like you said, 
plot-wise, more or less the same. There are some deleted chapters and deleted sequences and combined characters like there would be in any uh, adaptation. But plot-wise, for the most part, this this uh, this corresponds pretty neatly with, with the novel, where the difference lies is purely, purely in tone. And that warmth of tone and that empathy of tone for PTA that is just so lacking in Pinchon's book, which you said is, is so controlled, but is also so deeply caustically bitter and angry yeah. at, at what happened. Whereas with, with, with Anderson, there's almost this sad, just kind of, why has it got to be this way? Why has it got to be this way? But I wonder if some of that is also a generational thing, um, you know, because I mean, and, and you mentioned this too, is, you know, Pinchon's, you know, I mean, he lived through the 60s. I, I yeah. mean, it was, it was, you know, it was an important time. It was a formative time for him. This was I mean, his innocence to lose. It was his innocence. I mean, he had, uh, admittedly, he's older. So, you know, he, yeah. he already an established author in the 60s. But, you know, he was in the middle of all that stuff. Um, and, you know, in, so, so the, the, the turning point of 1970 is, you know, for him, you know, something that must, must be enraging, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, for Paul Thomas Anderson, who's obviously much younger, there is this sense of nostalgia. I mean, there's no nostalgia in, in um, Inherent Vice, at least as, as far as I can tell. Um, I mean, it's been a while since I've read the book, so I don't remember it all that well. But, um, but you know, there is, I feel like there is, a, I mean, nostalgia is not quite the right word, but there is this sense of kind of, you know, a, a sort of a, a fond remembrance. I mean, it's all about memory in a way that the book isn't. Um, and I think that's, you know, I mean, I think that the, the, the film is suffused with that. And I'm not sure that someone who lived through all that would be able to, to do that with, that with that story. And, and yet, P.T. still manages to capture that sense of loss, but it's so much, I feel like it's in a way so much more grandiose compared to what is in the book because I feel like the book is a very specific time and place and I feel like there is a, a grandiosity in, 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 its, in the film's application of this tone and mood to everything. This is about the inherent vice of life and of time and how time takes everything from us regardless of whether or not you are an already aging hippie in 1970 or you're a guy who was born in 1970, as he was, that this is something that everyone can ID and clock and understand. And for me, that's also why I think the film, no slur, uh, no slur on Thomas Pinchon, who's, who's, as you said, he's an okay writer. He's all right. He's had a few good lines. I do feel like the film is so much more special than the book because I do feel that the film, there's just some, there's just something that, like, I, I, I this is going to sound so pretentious and at the same time so inarticulate. The film just feels like life to me. It just feels, it feels like life. The chaos of it, the doldrums of it, the excitement of it, the unpredictability of it, and ultimately the sadness of its passing and the, 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 the time that passes through it ir- irretrievably. Yeah. And there's just, there's something to that that is just, there's a magic to that that is just not in the book. And I feel like this whole episode is now going to be, I feel like we're turning into, like, let's slag uh tommy p but there that is that is something that is just not in his works i just don't think it i just don't think it is in his wheelhouse the way it is in pta's it's also one of his least ambitious books sure yeah (laughs) and this is one of pta's most ambitious films i would argue you know and that's that's a really interesting way of putting it and i think but you are right this is this was kind of everyone saw this as 
this is oh this is Pinchon's genre novel this is his beach book this is him having a laugh playing with convention and structure and genre but obviously you know this is no this is no Mason and Dixon this is no uh, uh, this is this is no Gravity's Rainbow and but like you said that's somehow inverted when PTA takes on like oh my god he's adapting a Pinchon novel this is going to be this is going to be the object jart of 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 the 21st century this is going to be it cinema will be done after this film and inst- obviously that is most people did not agree on that when it came out we were talking about uh before we began recording that i, I think this is considered his biggest flop commercially this is the one that that just didn't connect and i think that you can measure that by how uh, something else that we were talking about before we began was that inherent vice when you talk to people who when you talk about to people about the film in general you'll get the few like you and i that are like oh god that's my movie that is my film i love it but there's also a lot of those people that are like oh boy i hated i hated that movie i hated it and then you get those that hated it and but now they're like you know what i've come around on it i get it now i've lived with it I've watched it a few more times. I get that it's not about this and it's not about that, but it's really about this and this. You get all those, but as you said, one of the one thing you don't get that you get with a lot of other cult films, weirdly, Inherent Vice does not have that cache of recent converts. So we're, we're, we're kind of a dying breed, the, the people on the show and listen, because I feel like you don't get those people that are like, "Ooh, I caught it last year on HBO," and boy, oh boy, that one—it it, it blew my mind. I'm so lucky I caught that, or I caught that screening at the New Bev. Oh boy, you don't hear that about this movie. Well, because it's—it's—I think it's one of those films that, you know, the—I—I the, the, I, I, like, like I was telling you, I've talked to a, a number of people who have come around on the film, like didn't like it initially, and now love it or, or like it a lot more or finally kind of get it or whatever and you know and, and I do think it's its reputation is increasing um, and, and it is rising for that reason however they're never people who just discovered the movie they're all people who saw it initially didn't quite get it and have now come around so it's already a, a small sort of self-selecting group we're yeah. talking about here but I do think that it'll you know I will say this um, a film that a film that sort of happened to for a while and then eventually it changed. Um, Eyes Wide Shut is a film that that kind of happened to, where, um, you know, there was a certain, and obviously Eyes Wide Shut, while not an incredibly successful movie financially, did better than Inherent Vice did. Um, You know, a a bunch of people saw it at the time, really didn't like it. Um, Some of us saw it and loved it. Over the years, a lot of those people kind of came around and, after a certain point, people started to discover it. And obviously that just has to do with like, you know, new humans being created. But um, but now, you know, Eyes Wide Shut is kind of this like classic that plays, you know, back when we had movie theaters, at least, you know, it played every movie theater in New York around Christmas time and things like that. And it's like widely considered a classic, which I find so surreal because I remember being afraid to talk about Eyes Wide Shut back when it came out. People were so angry about it. Um, so like it would, I remember like I remember being literally bullied for liking Eyes Wide Shut back in 1999 I remember being trapped on a bus with co-workers going somewhere and, and like talking to somebody about how much I liked Eyes Wide Shut and 
literally the guy got up, hey, he liked Eyes Wide Shut. And I just got like, just waylaid for the next half hour. <laughs> um, so anyway, and now it's like a classic. Now, now it's hard to find people who don't like it. You it's know? Like, that's like film Twitter in person. I know, yes. Before we had Twitter, we had actual. <laughs> Jesus. Actual mailings. Well, speaking of how I have seen this film through so many different eyes and how it has kind of Rubik's cubed itself for me, which each get with each guest. Why? I'm curious why. Why did this connect with you? How did this connect with you? Why why are you one of those people that walked out of that theater going, God damn, he's got it. He's still got it. He's still doing it. PTA just it's, it's it's another one, one after another. And why weren't you one of those people that walked out going, boy, the heat's off? This I, I did not connect with this one at all. That's a good question. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, the film has, you know, the, 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 the wistfulness of the film is almost like inoculates it against issues of like narrative coherence or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like one of my favorite movies is The Big Sleep, right? Which is, you know, yeah. famous, and I'm sure it's been, it's come up many times, but it's like the classic noir that makes absolutely zero sense. And you're lost like 20 minutes into the movie, but it's so well done. And each scene is so great that it does not matter that you have no idea what's happening and that the filmmakers had no idea. what's. It's just every scene works beautifully. Um, and this kind of had that quality. Like, so that it was fairly early on, clear to me early on. That I was like, we're not going to get a resolution here. Like, I don't feel like, <laughs> I don't feel like we're moving towards something um, or, you know, towards like something specific. Um, so you can sort of enjoy it in that way. Um, but, you know, I, I, I love that wistfulness. I mean, I love the fact that it's, in many ways, a kind of twisted love story um, and has all the sort of weird romanticism of those stories while also, you know, kind of interrogating that whole idea. Um, And and also, I mean, Doc is such a human character. Like, I mean, he's such a, I mean, look, we we can go on forever about how, this type of noir story for so many filmmakers, you know, reveals the way they see the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like what you do with your noir hero, I think in many ways says a lot about the kind of person you are and the kind of artist you are. And I love that Doc is this guy who is completely, um, uh, you know, enslaved by his desires and his wants. He's such a human, you know, he's, he's so fallible in that way. You know, he goes to, um, you know, he, 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 he goes to investigate something and then somebody's like, would you like the pussy eater special? And he's just like, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, I, oh, I don't mind if I do, you know? Um, I mean, that's such a, like, that's, you know, that's a much more relatable character and much more, obviously, a, a PTA character. Yeah. Uh, completely governed by their desires. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's just inherently compelling to me, somebody like that. Like, I just feel like that's so much more the kind of person that, that you, as strange and surreal as these characters are, that to me is very human. That is very relatable. That is like, I, I, I know these people. These are the people that, that, that live in the world, you know? Exactly. And, and, and part of the chaos of the film 
And one of the reasons why I feel like the chaos works for me is that it's only making Doc more relatable because the chaos of the film is his mental chaos. We are, we are just as clueless as he is. We are, we are only piecing things together just about at the same speed he is. You know, and, and I love that, 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 that he is the kind of the detective that when he's given the name of a Spanish community development that Mickey Wolfman might be making to say sorry about that to the counterculture, he just writes down something Spanish because he's too stoned to even try to spell that. And he just hopes, hopes that in his ramblings and wanderings around Los Angeles, the hint something Spanish will, will mean something. And that, that, that to me is so Doc, but it's also, I feel like this is, Doc does just about as good as probably any one of us would do that happens to be, be an okay shot with a gun. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's, he's all of us in this film. But I also think that part of those appetites, part of those, 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 that unwillingness or that inability on his part to control some of those appetites, it actually does give him a darker shading and a little bit of nuance, uh, both in terms of how that reflects on the, the counterculture in general because I do think that a big part of the novel was investigating the self-created rot at the heart of the hippie movement through its, let's say it's, it's, it's wanton abuse, use and abuse of, at times of drugs and of, of just excesses in general. And I also feel like some of that, that darkness of shading is more in line with what PTA is doing with this, this kind of inquiry into a certain type of, as, as you put it, uh, a whole category of messed up American male in terms of his relationship specifically with Shasta, which the film focuses so much more upon than, than the novel does. You know, I think the novel, she's kind of a, she's kind of a, uh, she's a trope in the novel. She's the, she's, she's the girl who, is the hourglass figure shape, the, the keyhole that, that, that pulls us into the mystery. And that's it. That's it. That's it. She's a MacGuffin. Uh, you know. Exactly. Yet in the, in the film, she's more than a trope. She's one of the most complex and therefore human characters. And yet one of the most disturbing vis-a-vis this relationship with Doc and the, the darkness inherent no pun intended, that is there. And I'm doing, I feel like I'm starting to do that great inherent vice episode thing that happens once per episode where I start to lose the end of this sentence. Now I've lost the beginning and I'm not quite sure where the end is, but I agree that that, 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 that relatability and that darkness of, of docs is I think something that is, uh, is what ma- one of the things that makes this, the film so indelible. And, and again, not to slur the book, so much more indelible than the character in the book who I just don't relate to as much. I just don't connect to as much. I don't love him the way I love Doc. Well, and also I think, I think the, uh, you know, this I think also has something to do with the way that cinema can, can recreate a world in a way that, you know, literature, I mean, literature does differently. Music does it differently. Theater does it differently. But, but cinema can really kind of fully realize a world and, and a milieu in a way that these other art forms I feel like can't. And one of the things that I do find interesting, and I, you know, it's only something I've thought about recently and I haven't thought it through entirely, but um, 
you know, I do find fascinating, especially kind of modern filmmakers relationship to the 60s. Some of them lived through it. Some of them kind of were kids during it. Um, but I do like, you know, so many filmmakers will have their one like 60s movie, right? Mm -hmm. And that movie says so much about kind of their, I mean, it's kind of like the noir thing, but it says so much about like their priorities, right? Yeah. I mean, like Tarantino did his 60s. And of course, it's never a 60s movie. It's always about 69, 70, you know, but like, it's the, end of the, it's, the, it's the end of the era 60s movie. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, that's what someone's right. 60s movie But like Tarantino made his 60s movie last year. And sure enough, it was it was basically like Tarantino's vision of the 60s. A couple of B-movie actors could have stopped this craziness from happening if they just killed the right hippie, right? And I mean, it's obviously he's having fun with that idea. But that is so him, right? That, that like his vision of the 60s is so him. Um, and then you think of... You know, like Terry Gilliam with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, you know, that is very much sort of his vision of what happened in the 60s. Obviously, that's set in the 70s, I think. But, um, or, uh, I mean, you know, like Michael Mann's Ali is his 60s <laughs> movie, right? I mean, it, it totally is. And you look at it, it's like, of course, this is what Michael Mann would focus on in the 60s, you know. Well, it's Fox like, you know, there, there's that period where uh, uh, every every rock band had to cover Yesterday by the Beatles. Every, and, and they... And, it's they take the basic superstructure, but they they apply they kind of honeycomb their aesthetic around that. Sure, and you sure, can almost yeah. you can almost look at the the '60s movie as the cover as the director's cover song, or like when as you yeah. said when they do their neo noir when they go through they do their tour through neo noir like to live and die in L.A. for Friedkin or uh, in this case you know, Inherent Vice for PTA he's he's got the double decker he's doing neo noir and into the era '60s movie all in one because the kid's ambitious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why it feels so ambitious is that he's kind of tackling, he's doing his like, his noir and he's doing a 60s movie. Um, but but also, I mean, like, uh, yeah, I mean, like even The Irishman, right? The Irishman is kind of, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, yeah. with that, I've, uh, why do you, why this film? Like, why do you think PTA picked this? You know, it's interesting. PTA has a lot. PTA has a line about why he feels the inherent vice is significant to Pichon. Why? Why he told this story? Someone said, you know, asked him, why do you think he wrote this book? You know, why do you think he wrote a hippie novel? We expect him to write these big doorstop tomes. And what? What? What is this all about? And PTA said, well, you know. I thought about that. And he's Thomas Pinchon. He's one of our greatest minds, one of the greatest imaginations American literature has had in the 20th and 21st centuries. He could write about literally anything. And he chose this. And in choosing this, that makes this meaningful. We might not totally understand the meaning, but there is something, again, no pun intended, inherently meaningful about the choice if someone on his level made it. And I also, I find that interesting in terms of Inherent Vice, the, the film. I wonder why a guy who works at a relatively measured pace, PTA, we only get a new movie from him every couple of years. I mean, my God, there was like a seven-year gap at one point. For him to say, this is the movie, not, not against the day or Mason Dixon you know, or anything like, if, if he is going to do a Pinchon adaptation, no, he's going to do the weird little book that's kind of like a beach novel. Uh, it, I'm curious, 
as someone who's followed his work, why do you, why, why this book? Why do you think he chose this story when there are others that are almost, you know, I think, uh, I think you could argue something like against the day, I think is, is even more Anderson esque in its mosaic how, of characters. How the fuck would you turn that into a movie? I mean, <laughs> well, how, I mean, the, how the fuck do you turn this into a movie? I, know, I mean, but this is at least short, you know, like. I mean, <laughs> at least it's short. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, no, obviously, but like, I mean, I don't know, like, the, the circumstances of the adaptation. For all I know, I mean, something tells me Thomas Pynchon wouldn't necessarily, like, if somebody came to him and said, I'm going to turn, you know, against the day into a movie, he'd be like, go fuck yourself, you know? Um, <laughs> whereas something like this, or somebody like, I mean, something like Vineland, I mean, the, 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 I don't know what to call them, the sort of more manageable Pynchon books like Vineland, Crying of Lot 49, you know, Inherent Vice, which are shorter, you know, slightly sort of more structured, um, you know, I, I mean, like you could call them his entertainments, quote unquote, like what Graham Greene used to call them. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, those seem much more like things that one could potentially adapt um, or that he would even be open to someone adapting. Um, so on that level, I'm not, you know, Inherent Vice seems like as good a choice as any. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is an interesting choice for Paul, Thomas Anderson to, to, to tackle. Regardless, I do wonder though if, you know, I mean, with the master, you know, the, the, for, for me, his career, you know, he, he has these early films which are very, um, conventional isn't the word I'm looking for, but I'm gonna say conventional, but you know, they, they, they kind of have this, this sort of very clear narrative sweep and the rhythms are all there and everything makes kind of tonal sense. And, um, you know, they get like, widely acclaimed Oscar nominee and whatnot. And then like Punch Drunk Love is such an odd little movie, right? Punch Drunk Love is, you know, it, it's just, its rhythms are so off kilter and, and the performances are so odd. And, you know, it's clear that he's trying to sort of break free of, of this, you know, of this kind of conventional structure of filmmaking. Um, but, you know, it's also a romance and it has that, and it kind of has, there's something imposed on it that allows it to kind of work as a movie while he experiments with it in also all these interesting ways. Um, you know, I, I mean, obviously uh, There Will Be Blood is kind of a masterpiece in this regard because he's able to take something, um, you know, kind of a conventional novel in that sense or even just like one section of it and turn it into this bizarre uh, 2001 style film. Um, you know, the the map for me the master and inherent vice kind of exist though almost as like a kind of diptych um and you know and it's, it's not just because of Joaquin but but I think some of it has to do with the this this real just incredible sense of freedom in both films where you got the sense that you know he was willing to try anything um and you you watching both films and this jabs with what you just said you get the sense that, you know, these films were created in, under circumstances in which anything could have happened and the stories could have gone anywhere. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I, I can't help but think of, I mean, this is, this is maybe almost self-parodic of me, but I can't help but think of Terrence Malick <laughs> um, and sort of how he, you know, after a certain point, started to shoot his films where everything was improvised. I mean, the, the story you told me about um, Anderson 
telling Josh Brolin to do that scene without any dialogue um, reminds me of that. I mean, Malik would do that. Like he would say, okay, we've done the scene. Now do the scene. Don't say anything. Yeah. Just communicate through your gestures, the things that you're supposed to communicate uh, through dialogue. Um, obviously it's different than like punching him, but, um, but, I, but that sense of freedom and that sense of experimentalism um, is, is really, really compelling and you can sense it in the film. And I wonder if the decision to adapt this novel maybe had something to do with that because, you know, in adapting a Pinchon novel, you know you're not gonna like, quote unquote, stick to the story. It's not like you have this um, incredibly, uh, you know, clearly thought through, you know, you know the, where the beats are specified and the structure is, is like has this very conventional structure that you're not supposed to mess with it. Like that kind of gives you this overarching, um, you know, tent within which you can play. Uh, and, but it gives you some of the elements that you need for just the story in general to work. And, you know, I, I think in many cases it's, um, you know, filmmakers I think like to have those kinds of things to work off of because it allows them, it allows, you know, it allows them to be creative in other ways without having to actually create the story from scratch, which is, you know, which, which can be a very, you know, a very limiting thing when you're the guy who has come up with the whole story from beginning to end and all the beats and all the characters. And then within that, within that structure, you then have to give yourself the freedom to play. Um, yeah, I think there's a lack of preciousness with yeah. this film. Even though I think that PTA felt obviously very beholden to honor the story, I think it was more important for him to honor what he felt was the soul of the story which is again, that thing that we've been talking about, which is why I think the tone is so much more warm in this film is I think that's what he latched onto so quickly in this book, which is how much you miss someone. And I also think that I view this film as almost an eruption in his filmography in that, you know, everyone knows about the, the hard time he had on Sydney uh, or hard eight, if you want to be a dick about it, but the, 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 <laughs> The, the the hard time that he okay, had. That, that's the, the the PTA nerds. <laughs> that, that, that's where I break with the nerd. I'm like, it's hard eight. That's what the movie's called. <laughs> hard eight. If you want to be a dick about it. Okay. Um, so on a film like Sydney, which you know he lost Final Cut, uh, or you know the that the, the, the studio mandated changes that he just w hated, including including the name, uh, that. There, you know, I've read stories about how with Boogie Nights, like he came in hot uh, uh, to New Line and he literally like sat down on the very first production or the, 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 to sign the contract. He's like, all right, you've read the script. This is the fucking script. We're shooting it word for word. Here are, here is a book. Here is a book of shot lists and, and diagrams. This is, this is exactly how we're filming the thing. You need to look at this before you even sign this contract because this is how I'm making the movie. And by all accounts, he did the uh, exact same thing with Magnolia, which is to say everything was hyper, hyper controlled and set in stone before anyone even walked on the set. And then, as has been noted by uh, some of his longstanding crew members, something happened with Punch Drunk and he just kind of, he started just showing up and not not quite knowing how he was going to get what he wanted. He still knew what he wanted, but he didn't know how he was going to get there. And that carried through uh, to films like The Master, where the difference, though, I think that, that that kind of evolution of style and that, that 
that confidence that comes with experience and getting older and not needing to have everything just so diagrammed out. It got to the point, I think with inherent vice, I don't even know that he knew. I don't even know that he knew what he wanted when he showed up on the set. It, you know, it was that, uh, it was that great line. I'm going to screw this up by, um, by Kubrick who said, I think he said something to the effect of uh, he doesn't know what he wants. He knows what he doesn't want. Mm. He'll know what he wants when he gets there. And I, I, that, that very much, I think, was the, the feeling of this film, is you feel a director kind of grasping for truths and grasping in each scene for what is trying to find within each scene, why did I like this movie? Why, or why did I like this novel? Why did I agree to make this movie? Why did I agree to spend two or three years of my life? And each scene feels like an exploration on his part of finding that again and rediscovering that again. And again, that's also super, super pretentious. And again, hey, I told you this is going to be the nerdiest thing you're going to do all quarantine is, the, is a, this podcast. But I think that there's something special in that. And I think that you can feel that in every scene as you feel an artist looking for the reasons why this story connected with him and trying to get that on the screen and doing everything he can do, whether it's letting one of his leads ad lib the final, the second to last scene of the film and eat an entire plate of weed. This is not scripted. <laughs> This was a Brolin ad lib and just saying, yeah, yeah, we can put some oregano on there. Why not? Let's do it. Let's get the proppy over here and we'll, we'll do it. I think, you know, it's funny. You, you mentioned Kubrick. Um, that's a thing that a lot of people didn't realize about Kubrick. And I think still don't realize about Kubrick is how free form he was. Yeah. I mean, everybody I've talked to about Kubrick, um, that's the thing they, you know, they're like, you know, we didn't know what, what we were going to shoot. Like, they'll be like, you know, be like, we'd sit in the trailer and be like, okay, how should we do the scene? What should happen next? And, you know, what should be the ending of the movie? You know, like, I mean, if you read the stories about Full Metal Jacket, it's just like, we, you know, they were just winging it. Um, and, um, and I wonder, you know, like, sometimes I wonder with like Magnolia um, and Tom Cruise and Eyes Wide Shut, like, was there a certain point at which like, Tom Cruise. I can't remember. Was Magnolia was did, was Magnolia shot before Eyes Wide Shut or after? No, 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 no. Uh, uh, Magnolia was after. Magnolia right? was after because PTA. That's how PTA met Tom Cruise. Is Kubrick invited him to the set because Kubrick loved Boogie Nights. Right, right. right. While there, uh, I think Tom basically said, "You know, I I'll, I'll do any I, I, whatever <laughs> your next project is. I'll do it. I'm I'm down. I loved Boogie Nights. I'm down." And I think. And PTA was kind of rightly like, well, I'm working on something that might have, I might have a place for you in it. And that became uh, Frank T.J. Mackey. And, and with, so I wonder if maybe like, because, you know, so many directors, other directors kind of grow up with the myth of Kubrick. As, I mean, so, so, you know, he's like everybody's favorite director of a certain type of filmmaker. Um, and then there's a certain point at which they realize, oh, wait, no, he actually like made up a lot of shit and, and had a lot of freedom on set. Um, and I wonder if like that, that was, you know, that helped kind of reveal to, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson that there was another way to do this stuff. Um, or it might have, might have been growing, growing up, growing older, you know. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. Maybe he kind of went through he, his he own. The drugs he was taking. <laughs> you, know, you know, maybe he went through his own PTA character journey where he's collecting <laughs> father figures as his characters do and in, in encountering Kubrick. Uh, he he does the master thing where he starts uh, taking on his persona. Maybe, maybe, probably also, not. He also he also shadows. I mean, he's always a big Robert Altman fan, but he shadows Robert Altman, right? Yeah. On, um, 
on the you know prairie home companion um and i i would not be surprised if that affects things as well because you know altman was this incredibly improvisatory filmmaker. Yeah. all of that said with all of that said all of that highfalutin chit chat about making of and the scaffolding and the mood and the tone as i said in the beginning if there's one thing this film is about the one thing we can definitively say that this film is about it's character 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 and i think that the three most fascinating characters in this film are doc sportello bigfoot bjornson and shasta Faye hepworth and you sir you sir are lucky enough to have the only scene in which all three share space you lucky devil i can see on your face you are beaming with pride it's, it's, it's like the, you're in it's like you're in the middle of a ticker tape parade you can't believe how lucky you are to be doing this right now it, it's this movie's version of the de niro pacino coffee shop <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you know, that's you know what yeah this is this if this to compare this again to the irishman this is de niro Keitel and Pesci all on the same screen, hanging out, blowing your mind. Uh, a little less, maybe, you know, a little less CGI. But yeah, this is, this, is the, this is the only moment where all three of them come together in any conceivable way. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that you, along with my beloved Blake Howard, are the only two guests who have ever gone toe-to-toe in an interview, one-on-one interview with Michael Mann. And if, if you, any Michael, if there's one thing any Michael Mann fan knows that there is going to be a dialectic inquiry in his works, usually by putting two opposing characters in front of one another in order for them to reflect one another, to see their similarities and to see their differences. The same as we've been posing the book against the film. And why I think this scene, today's scene is so interesting is I feel like we have Doc in the center and in one half of this scene, we have Doc as reflected and refracted through Bigfoot Bjornsson and vice versa. And we have Doc as reflected and refracted through his relationship with Shasta Faye Hepworth and vice versa. And clearly that's the kind of thing that fascinates me because I have a podcast called Increment Vice. Uh, and clearly it's the thing that you are grudgingly willing to talk about with me because you're here. So I think it's time for you and I to watch this scene and dig in proper. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. to go on just the broadcast barrett put out he was ambushed by two male negroes possibly on foot he thinks he wounded both of them but we can't be sure as far as i know we have two units code 100 one on oh, manchester and one on adorable Lane. i got him both of them and the rest of us can shake the area on foot johnson you and your partner stay here let's go hi shasta Hi, Doc. Neither I'm on the time machine, nor you're back. I've been away 
Where have you been? Up north. Family stuff. Anything been happening down here? Your friend in the uh, construction business? Uh, that's all over. He's back with Sloan and the kids, and so what? You know, you, you got a load of people out looking for you, Shasta. Well, here I am. Say lovey. Say lovey. Hey, so fucking Sarah, Sarah. <sighs> Something like that. Like your necklace. Mm, can't be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where is your girls back in town? Oh yeah, that's uh, news to me. Where you been? No place I'd recommend. Any developments on the Koi Harlequin matter? Give a shit. Any of them include Prussia or Beaverton or any of the motherfuckers that I've given you? I forget that. Listen, listen. Any results of those fucking marks? You know, Corners people got very upset with me for suggesting more lab work. You know that? Well, I just thought it'd be a helpful tip to a fellow professional. Huh? Oh, really? How's that, Sportello? Yeah, when your own um, hearing comes up. What are you suggesting? One county supervisor with a bug up his ass is all it takes to bring you down, Bigfoot. This is Mrs. Chastity Bjornsson, and if that is one more sociopathic special employee of my husband, I will thank you to stop harassing him on his day off. It's Oh, Sportello, Doc Sportello, the Doc Sportello. So, we meet at last. Mr. Moral fucking turpitude himself, have you any idea of the therapist bills around here for which you are directly responsible? The department picks up just a little. Oh, the department? Yeah, after a deductible that would choke a fucking horse. Uh, you know, he called me. Now, Christian, please. And would you stop acting like a beaten dog? I ask you for one fucking day a week. Our portrait of Doc in this scene is somewhat split in two. One half is given over to Bigfoot, one half is given over to Shasta Faye. I think this back end of this episode, we need to split this in two. And I think we, we need to look at Doc and Bigfoot and Doc and Shasta. And I, I want to start with Bigfoot on here. This, I feel like just about every scene with Bigfoot Bjornsson, and I say this as someone who loved the film the first time through, just about any scene with Bigfoot Bjornsson doesn't make a lick of fucking sense the first time you watch this movie. And maybe even the second time. That so much of this character is that 90% of the iceberg under the surface. And it's only after a couple of viewings that you're able to go, oh, okay, okay he's he's heartbroken he's heartbroken over a dead partner 
maybe this dead partner was killed by the fang he's a he's also he's a he's a he's a cop and he's a coward and he won't turn against his his thin blue line so he's outsourcing doc to 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 take down the people he knows are responsible for this and yet in spite of that like you said you can't he you can't help but feel this welling of empathy for him and i remember watching this scene the first time and 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 feeling that empathy and having read the book and yet at first not getting why this scene was in the film and the, the, the specifically the, just the his phone call like why this phone call interrupts the return of Shasta Faye Hepworth i couldn't see it and i couldn't understand it and i'm going to i'm going to throw something at you i'm going to throw something at you and see what you think so i feel like just about every scene that includes bigfoot bjornson in this film is meant to be a funhoused mirror of how similar these two men are uh similar in plot different in tone as as we're as is the growing theme of this episode in that you know we learn that yeah adrian prussia and puck beaverton had uh murdered had been outsourced or hired by the golden fang or by the lapd to kill vincent and delicato Bigfoot's former partner. And this, this revelation, it recasts all of Bigfoot's behavior in the film as, as, as I said, this grotesque funhouse mirror of slash stand-in for Doc's own lovelorn grief for Shasta. Uh, just as Doc is this hippie longing for the 60s and his ex-old lady, Bigfoot is, is a square who's mourning the dual deaths of the 1950s and his partner. And they are so... To, to, to use a, an inherent vice type colloquialism, they're so vibrating on the same wavelength of, of grief and loss and longing that there are moments like when Doc is in the tie closet at Mickey Wolfman's, he's just able to look up and go, Bigfoot. And sense that Bigfoot is outside ready to beat his ass. Or in the final scene where they're literally spe- they speaking the same word. lines. It's like they, they are so in tune. And it's like, it's, it's as if, a portrait is being drawn to show us everything that this movie is about, which is it's about like PTA says about how much you can miss someone. And the first time I was watching this movie, I just couldn't quite put that together as much as I still loved it. This was one of those things. I just, I, I just didn't see why. And now I, I rewatch the scene and there's so much, there's so much to the Bigfoot moments here. And so that are so necessary, whether it's, the sadness of him constantly trying to consume personas, either through costumes, like we see him this ill-fitting Adam 12 extra outfit, the way we, he's always consuming food. He's always trying to acquire something that will define him and, and make him feel complete. But in addition to that, and I'm just throwing everything I have at you, I'm just, I'm, I am machine gunning at you right now. Uh, one thing that I find fascinating in watching this is the the cutting the way this scene is cut together with doc on one end of the phone line and bigfoot on the other notice how it's i i I just feel like bigfoot is set up to be such a comedic microcosm of doc's sadness notice how shasta is so oddly framed once the phone call begins where she's walking right towards the camera and her head is cut off and her her feet are cut off you only see her from like the knees to the neck as she's holding a beer and walking right to the camera. And then it cuts 
to Bigfoot's wife in his living, walking towards him in his living room, cut off at the head, cut off at the feet. You only see her from knees to neck. And it's as if these women are total mysteries to the men that they are with. And instead of seeing who they are, they only see them as the uniforms they wear uh, by which these men seem to define them. The house dress for Chastity Bjornsson and the bottom half of a flower print bikini and a country Joe and the fish t-shirt for Shasta, the way Doc always wanted her to be dressed. And I find this scene to be really indicative of how these two men hurt and long, but also how they don't have the healthiest relationship with the women in their lives. That's my speech. That's my big speech, Bilga. I mean, yes. <laughs> this is exactly, that is exactly what I told you not to do with the VR. No, but like, I, I mean, that's the thing I, I notice about that scene is the way that the, the cutting, the rhythm of the cutting between the way Shasta moves and the way Mrs. Uh, Bigfoot moves, it, you know, it, it mirrors each other, right? I mean, it's almost yeah. like, the, you know, reverse of, you know, she could be exactly where, they're sort of exactly where spatially they're, they're it's the exact same yeah, like they were kind of switched around shasta goes to the kitchen all of a sudden chastity's in the kitchen yeah. chastity walks and, back shasta walks back. yeah and as you note they're both wearing a uniform right one is yeah. i mean one is wearing the uniform of you know 60s housewife domesticity and the other is wearing the 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 uniform that you know i mean it's, it's in the book that she's wearing this stuff as well but the the, the line that sort of says at the beginning of the movie um you know the country Joe in the fish switch uh, shirt and the uh, you know, the bikini bottoms, and um, it's um, so you get the sense that we're watching a pattern, right? Yeah. This is, I mean, she has come back, but she's also coming back in the very first scene of the movie. Like she just she goes away, she comes back. Like this is part of you know this, you get the sense that this is almost like part of you know Doc's own domestic ritual in a weird way. Um, and yeah, and, and they don't really exist as people, they, they exist as ideas. But the thing that I, I find fascinating, I mean, the thing about this scene that I find really fascinating is when uh, Mrs. Bigfoot gets on the phone and um, starts chewing out Doc, mm -hmm. the expression on Bigfoot's <laughs> face, the, the expression on Josh Brolin's face um, is, is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen because you can't quite tell, and I suspect the answer is all of these things, but you can't quite tell if he's trying to, uh, sorry, I'm like, I'm like not finishing these sentences because in the book, Bigfoot is very sort of meekly trying to stick up for, for dogs. Like, no, no, actually the, the, you know, the, the office covers the dental the part yeah. of it. He's trying to make these excuses. Um, and he's just, he's a complete weakling. And that's funny. And that's very Pinchon. Um, in the movie, he's got this like beatific look on his face. <laughs> he is at once, like, cause, and, he's, and he's like slightly nodding. So he's like at once kind of really excited that his wife is chewing out um, Doc. But also like he does still do the kind of like, you know, oh yeah, yeah the office covers just a little bit. But, it'd be, but it's like he's pointing out the fact that it's just a little because it's like it's somehow adds to her outrage right yeah. um and like he's like he's, he's the brother that tell he's a, he's the brother that's a tattletale that's getting yeah, you in trouble he's not like he's like he's like kind of like he wants to see this happen but he also realizes that he should like you know he obviously realizes that he's the one who called but like it's so beautiful 
because you have no idea. It's actually not, it's not that you don't have any idea what's going on in his head. You kind of have an idea of what's going on in his head and like everything is going on in his head. And you realize how confused and fucked up and beautifully human this guy is. Because that is actually, I think in many ways, a much more realistic response to what's happening in that moment than what we would ordinarily get in a movie yeah. where we'd be like, one emotion, this character has to convey this emotion at this moment. And he now here's the character conveying all the emotions in this totally throwaway moment. Um, and it's, it's amazing. Um, I mean, it's actually like one of my favorite, favorite, favorite moments in the film, that look on his face. Because I'm like, what is going on here? Like, is he, is this a good thing in his mind or a bad thing that's happening? I have no idea, but that's so Bigfoot, right? Um, and it, I think it, it's also, it's yeah, it's also worth pointing. I mean, Bigfoot is always consuming, but so is Doc. I mean, Doc isn't always eating. He's sometimes eating, but he's always, he's got the oxygen on his face or he's just, you know, he, there's always something like Doc is always looking to consume something. Um, there's always know, some kind of chemical aberrance with Doc. Yeah. He's or, or, yeah. Or like he's being seduced, you know, or like he's being pulled into like, we talked about this and, and, you know, I think I mentioned this in my Rolling Stone thing. You know, Doc is, you know, very much a creature of appetites. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes those appetites are not met, but he's kind of searching for something. And Bigfoot is a guy who has kind of achieved, quote unquote, the like the, the middle class, the bourgeois dream. And Bigfoot has everything he needs to consume. He has his alcohol, he has his, he has his frozen chocolate bananas. You know, he can, he just, he consumes everything. He takes every, anything he wants and just takes it. Um, and I feel like that adds to the mirroring, really. Um, and also, you know, both of them are constantly under disguises, you know, not always good, but they always <laughs> seem like, you know, there's always this kind of like changing, you know, change your hair, change your, change your personal persona. Um, and they're never very good. They're never they're very good. Yeah. Although I, I never feel like Doc's disguises are indicative of Doc not knowing who he is. Although I, I think there's an argument to be made that maybe Doc doesn't know quite who he is I, I, in terms of his role as a boyfriend or lover or partner to Shasta Faye. I think, I think there's some cluelessness on Doc's part, which we'll get to. But I, I think in general, his, his cost, the wackiness of his costumes are just more in keeping with the fact that he's not the best at his job. But you know, what, it's like, what, what does sort of Lee say in the trailer? You know, he's not a do-gooder, but he does good. Whereas I feel like there's something to, there's something so indicative of a desperate insecurity to all of, of Bigfoot's outfits. You know, he can't even get an, out, uh, an extras uniform to fit him on, on Adam 12. And the, the outright ludicrousness of when he tries to dress like his, and act like his idea of a hippie when he's doing a Channel View Estates commercial. It, it, it's it, it's more reflective to me of the same way that he's always is as I was saying earlier always eating whether it's he's he's blowing bananas in, in, longing for his ex part or for his dead partner or he's chowing down on pancakes lamenting his lack of respect in rob robbery homicide and with his mother or then finally I think at the end of the film I think he recognizes Doc as the hero that he's never going to get to be and he consumes the thing that for him defines doc which is weed and in his mind that's all doc is that's how he defines doc he's a hippie he smokes weed there is something to all of his little outfits that i think are designed to hide what bigfoot ultimately is which is what we see in this scene which is he's a little boy he's an eight-year-old boy he's your little brother mm. that's ratting you out and 
got that little smile on his face because he knows you're going to get shit for this. And like, even though he knows he's going to get in a little trouble too, and he does, it's worth it because he's taken you down with him. And there's something about how little he is in this scene. The way he's he's framed as just sitting down and very demure and just nodding at, at chastity. As a, and we view chastity in that almost like a, like a nanny from the Muppet Babies where you only see her from like the knees to neck uh, like a child would. There's something about that that just it's it all comes together for me to just point to, to paint a picture of a man who is who's just he's locked he's locked in a time and place and he cannot grow out of it which is so much in keeping i think with the theme of, of the film and the book well and also also very much with who doc is in many ways i mean look you know chastity and chasta the, the names are even similar yeah but like, um i mean if you if we could think about it, this is kind of bleeding into the next scene which is which is not my scene but um, when, you know, when, when Shasta is seducing, not seducing, but when she's got her, you know, foot in his, in his lap and, you know, kind of stroking it and, and, um, you know, talking about, you know, what, what, what Mickey did with her, she clearly, I mean, we could say that that's a scene, not unlike what's happening with Bigfoot and, and the phone, where we can't quite tell what's happening, like what's going through Doc's head at that point. And he is kind of at the mercy there. Like he's reduced, you know, at that point, you know, the, the, like he loses all power in that sense, in that scene, in, some, in the way that Bigfoot does with his wife. And I would say, like, I think there's a kind of mirroring happening there as well. Um, and, and I think that, and I think like he's kind of reduced to, I mean, not uh, little boy isn't quite the right word because it's the prelude to a sex scene, but, but there is that kind of like infantilization that's happening. There is, yeah, it's, it's certainly a power play and we might as well use this as a transition to let's, let's be a couple of slick writers and, and evenly transition to, to Shasta Fay here. There is an infantilization of Doc in this sequence in as Shasta just kind of she just wanders into his home once again just wanders in like no no knocking on the door there she is and she does so with this attitude of it, it's so hard to read but keep in mind this guy's a detective it's his job to get answers and he keeps answer asking questions uh, you know, either I'm in a time machine or you're back, Shasta, which is it? And there's almost this this petulance or this this bitter resistance and anger and refusal to cede any kind of power to him by giving him any answer. And it's it's such a nuanced and pitch perfect performance by Waterston in that every answer she gives, it kind of sounds like a statement and a question. Like she, she's just not going to play. But like when, when he says, either I've been in a time machine or you're back, which is it? She goes, I've been away. Is she asking him that? Or is she saying, I've been away? But she says it in that tone, which is refusing to cede any conversational ground or cooperate in any way whatsoever to him. And that is also very much right out of the book too, right? Yeah. Because, because those lines in, in dialogue, in Pinchon's dialogue are, have question marks at the end of them. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, she she answers his questions with questions, uh, even though they are kind of answers. You know, and it, but it, you know the the way she says them is 
is this the truth or is she simply offering these as the things that he would want her to have done which then raises this whole other question of you know is 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 she kind of fulfilling a weird fantasy of his by you know with these stories that she's telling um you know it's 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 fascinating and i think that um you know you, she plays it absolutely perfectly um the way he responds to her i mean he is like a little kid because she you know she comes back and there's no like where have you been are you okay there's no it's just oh Hi, Shasta. Hey Shasta. Hey Shasta. Mm. You know, yeah, cool. <laughs> You're back. Okay. Um, phone, phone rings and he's like, I like your necklace. Yeah. <laughs> and and, that, and that's it. But again, I'm part of me understands her resistance because if you recall at the in the opening scene, he's like, Well, how do I get a hold of you? And she's like, You won't. Like yeah. she's she's telling him, like, while you're doing this, I'm going underground. You know, I'm not gonna be accessible. I don't know who these people are, and I don't I don't, you know, I don't want to lose my head over this. Mm -hmm. But there's also something deeper, and I think there is something deeper in her resistance to him. And you know, there was a, there was a brief period of time where I actually thought that this scene was not happening. I thought that this was some kind of hallucination. That the, that her behavior and the, the especially the outfit that she's wearing. But I I I've come around to the point where I believe that this entire sequence, including the one that's that's coming up, this is maybe not the right phrase because it indicates. Or maybe it is the right phrase because it indicates the the power shift and the power dynamic between them. It's almost like she's desperately trying to teach him a lesson mm -hmm. in that in how hold she's trying to hold up a mirror to how Doc sees her. Like I think she's showing up in the outfit she knows that uh, he would want her in, and by and if we we can we can slip a little bit into the next scene and when she's talking about. She's, she even says, well, you know, what kind of girl do you want, Doc? Do you want one of those Mansonoid girls that do whatever they're told? And then she starts to lay out what that would actually sound like vis-a-vis -vis her relationship with, with Mickey. And it's kind of horrifying. It's horrifying. But I, I, I feel like that's her saying, this is kind of what you act, this is what you want. You just want me to be this way with you. And then it's okay. And maybe I'm taking this too deeply, but I, if, if, if PTA is a guy who is constantly charting the different levels of toxicity and depravity and damage of a certain kind of American masculinity. This is this, this scene and the one and the, the beats that follow, I do think unlock a big part of this film and perhaps his interest in it is I think that doc is a, is a good man. I think he's a good character. I think he's a, he's a puppy dog of a detective. We love him, but I do think that he is not without his flaws. And I think that there is something to the idea that, the reason that he and Shasta aren't together are because of Doc and because of what he wanted. I think that in keeping with the film's themes, he never wanted Shasta Faye to change. Just like, just like uh, Pinchon never wanted the 60s to become the 70s and evolve into that. And just as the 60s, which were, by all accounts, frankly, pretty fucking terrifying. It's, 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 it's fascinating to me that they're so lamented. Uh, but the, that, that, that souring of the idea of the 60s, the utopic ideals of the 60s soured into the, the long hangover of the 70s. You know, Shasta's life has, I think, kind of charted that same arc. And I think that she recognized him in him, a man who just wants her to stay the same, just wants things to be the way they were on that day when it was raining. Uh, and we, we, couldn't find, uh, we couldn't find what the Ouija board sent us after. 
and I think that she's trying almost as an, as an act of love to show him this is, this is what you think you want. But if I hold it up to you just as a mirror, it's, it's ugly and it's disturbing. And that is to me so much of what this scene is coalescing around is it's, it's holding, it's the film and the character holding up a mirror to its characters and saying, this is what happens if you really want things to stay the same. Do you, if you really want things to atrophy, even if where they go is horrible and where they go is depressing. And we very much get the sense that whatever has been going on with Shasta Faye Hepworth in this film has been pretty harrowing. And the book makes it a little bit more clear that, you know, she's a typical kind of off the bus actress, wants to be an actress. And her story goes in about the same direction as most of the people that share that same dream. Mm-hmm. But there's something about that. I, I really do think that this, this scene and the one that follows, this is the skeleton key to the movie for me, or at least the skeleton key to perhaps PTA's interest in it. And it's, it's a character saying, I get it. I get that time, the, the passage of time sucks. I get that things changing sucks but you have to recognize what key, what happens if you try to atrophy and what happens if you try to make them stay the same. You have to look at how wrong this is. But also, I think in many ways, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with everything you say, but, you know, I don't necessarily think this is about this specific relationship so much as, you know, she's turning things around on him and showing him that the the very thing that he probably is most terrified of is in fact secretly the thing he wants. And, you know, that feels to me, um, I mean, for a guy who made uh, an entire movie about the porn industry, uh, (laughs) like P.T. Anderson understands that idea. Yeah. Um, And he he understands the the, the allure of that idea. And I think he also understands the, the toxicity of that idea and the monstrosity. I mean, that's what Boogie Nights is all about. Just like fantasy gone out of control um, and the underside of it. And and there is, you know, like this is that moment. I mean, you know, I don't know any director who could have pulled this, this scene and, and the next scene that we're fairly, we're talking about. I don't know any director who could have pulled the, those scenes off as well as he could have, because he kind of understands all the weird impulses that are going on beneath, and not, not beneath, but in that scene. Um, and, you know, and like the fact that it can be both, you know, arousing, but also incredibly dark and incredibly disturbing. Um, you know, he's able to play with those things. Um, the, the um, you know, I, I feel like this idea of, whether this is happening for real or is kind of you know his his little like inception <laughs> finale like is he is he yeah because there's also the thing which is like she's like uh, she says at the end of that scene you know you know this means we're not back together but the last shot of the movie is them driving together you know i mean so there is there is a lot of you know we don't exactly know uh we don't know exactly what's happening here although this is kind of this does prompt doc to now you know actually take action right yeah in, but but everything after this has this weird and not the whole movie has a dreamlike quality but everything after this has an especially dreamlike quality where you're not entirely sure did this happen yeah. did he actually kill uh you know adrian did he you know and then like the scene where you know i mean obviously i'm just totally going on to the next scenes now but 
you you've been on one heat minute you know yeah. how this works we yeah, always like, jump around when he quote unquote saves koi and it's like the sun is just shining directly into the camera and it's you're kind of like wait is this really i mean there is this weird dreamlike hazy quality to everything so Bilga, don't take that scene away from me that scene is my it's whole cool. heart don't it's you tell don't make scene. me don't even make me consider that it's a dream it's a, it's a beautiful scene I and don't have much Koi. in this world. I need to know that he saved Koi Harlingen. I know, no, but like Koi is such a lovely character. You oh just my do. god, isn't he great? Um, but Little yeah, kid blues. yeah, exactly. But like, I mean, the, the the thing is, you know, we also have to. I mean, you know, how do we reckon with? The, I'm sure you've discussed this uh, on, you know, I mean, look the the, you know, the flamboyant real estate developer uh, with, a, with a penchant for marketing himself who rolls with a clique uh, of Nazis is currently in control. <laughs> like, in real life, that guy became president. Uh, every fucking episode these days, I, know, I tell sure. you. <laughs> Keep going, you're on a roll. Keep going. No, no, I, no but uh, <laughs> one does wonder, though, you know, in terms of, you know, when we're looking at this film's portrait of American masculinity, like, what are we seeing? Like, beyond Doc, like, what else are we seeing? Are, are all these guys basically kind of variations on the same theme in some ways? I, I mean, I, I, I think so. And I think even beyond masculinity, I, I think that every single character in this story is a variation on that theme of, let's say, if, let's say Magnolia, the, the theme of Magnolia is what can we forgive? What can we, I mean, it's stated explicitly by multiple characters, underlined by Officer Jim Curring at the end, who I think actually is a lot like Bigfoot in that, that loser cop mode. He says, what can we forgive? What can we forgive? And I think that Inherent Vice takes that idea one step further and asks not only what can we forgive, it's what can we not, what can we survive without? What can we not let go of? Forget forgiveness. What can we just not live without? Who? can we just not live without? When can we not live without? And I think every single character in this film is a variation on that theme, whether it's Doc longing for Shasta, Bigfoot longing for Vincent and Delicato. Uh, it's Koi longing for his wife, uh, Hope, and Hope longing for Koi. It's Shasta longing for a better life. It's uh, Tariq Khalil longing for his missing neighborhood. It's jade longing for her neighbor or for her neighbor for her roommate who is longing for all the members of spotted dick it goes on and on and on and on or japonica finway longing for dr rudy blatnoy dds and rudy longing for more cocaine every single character either serious comedic or a mixture of both that madcap uh, naturalism that, that ethan mentioned a few ep an episode back all of it is filtered through these characters, that longing for something that has passed, the inherent vice of time, the thing that you can't insure against is that time will pass. Eggs will break, glass will shatter, time will pass. And I think what makes this a uniquely PTA film though is when that runs through the graded filter of some of his more masculine characters, he can't help but go to that place that he seems to always be interested in going to, which is that inquiry into toxic masculinity and how these two men in particular, Bigfoot and Doc, filter that longing and filter that inability to let go and how it becomes a need for control. 
And it's, it's, it's a weird thing that you wouldn't think about, Doc. You wouldn't think that he's a guy that's trying to be controlling. But I think that that, that is one of the secret, the dark and secret revelations at the heart of the movie is that Bigfoot, you would think would be a control freak, but you, as the film goes on, it seems like he's willing to give himself over to chaos because he's so lost. And Doc feels like a man who you would expect to be chaos incarnate, who I really think that Shasta begins to imply is doing everything he can to control her, not in quite, not in the way that seems overtly Wolfman like, mm-hmm. but in the idea it's like just stay the same, just be the girl with the long hair and the flower print bikini bottom and the faded country Joe and the fish t shirt. Just walk up the back steps to my bungalow, hang out, get high, listen to Neil Young. Please, and I, it's an understandable impulse to want to control. Please don't change, be the one thing that doesn't change. Don't let me lose this too don't let don't let the only thing that's left be the memories of us running in the rain and i feel like in the sequ- the this the beginning of this sequence and i think it's the reason why she is so cold and kind of unyielding and as it carries on into the next is i think she's trying to say look that kind of control look at mickey wolfman that's the end point of that kind of behavior this is what you want and i think that's why she she begins the next beat with kind of girl you want doc and to me i think that uh, and i feel like that's actually a very weirdly heat heat heat-esque diagramming of character as one slips from uh, control to chaos and one slips from Mm -hmm. chaos to control it's a very macaulay uh 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 pacino de niro crisscrossing there but i i I do think that there's something to that beyond my my late night pretentious warbling with you (laughs) well i mean i think no, I, I agree, and and I think there's also something, and, and this is one of the other things that I really love about Inherent Vice and why PTA is so good at this adaptation, and and why he was a good match for a guy like Pinchon, which is that, you know, the film is, I mean, the film is basically a journey through a bunch of different subcultures, right? Yeah. All these little communities, each of which is kind of this its own subculture, its own ecosystem, and every time he goes into one of those places it feels like he's going into something that's never going to change, right? There's no, like, it, you know, the, 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 the house party he goes into feels like it's just going to be going on forever. Like if he goes back there a week later, it's still going to be going on. <laughs> it's still going on. The, the, the party at, um, you know, the, 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 the party. At the Wolfman's. At the, the Wolfman's, right? With yeah. the cops. That party's never going to end. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? And she is, you know, so well preserved. Like yeah. she, never going to change you get the sense exactly um, right uh you know the the see you know w- the place where reese witherspoon works like that's you know that's this system that's just never going to, he keeps going into these and that's very pinchon right i mean all these subcultures all these little worlds that have their own kind of logic mm-hmm. that the characters journey through and you know and and doc is you know Doc is this kind of man on the outside. Like, he doesn't have his own little subculture. I mean, he has his little, like, click with Sordelage and stuff like that. But we never get the sense that he is in this, in a, a particular world uh, that's never changing and constantly turn, looping on itself until the Shasta scene, when you're like, wait, this is, is this the scene that we saw earlier? And it's kind of like, is this, is this a cycle? Is this his cycle that he's in, right? So then we get the sense that his world maybe is this unchanging idea of Shasta, right? That's his subculture. Yeah. Uh, and 
how does, and is he able to break out of it? And I guess that's the big question for the rest of the movie. Do you think he is? Well, I mean, he asserts control over his world, right? Um, but I mean, again, this is this question of, is he fantasizing about all this stuff? I don't, you know, I, I, I tend to believe that he's not. Like I, yeah. I take movies at, at, I take movies at their face value when they show me things like that. Though I, you know, then obviously indication, like as far as I'm concerned, end of inception, Leonardo DiCaprio lives happily ever after with his kid. <laughs> right? There is the grace note of, is this actually a dream? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think all these movies have that grace note because, you know, oh, there's the cat. Oh, there it is. There it is, <laughs> ladies and gents. Mark your bingo card. Uh, when uh, Bilga comes on the podcast, his cat will make an appearance at some point. Um, but, um, but I do think that, you know, there's that grace note, that, that question mark of, is it a dream? Which I think is a good note to kind of, you know, make you wonder, though I don't think it's necessarily the, direct, the director saying, this didn't actually happen, you know, go home. See, how I view it is more, I, I agree with you that this last third of the film is Doc asserting control, asserting a new, a, a, a type of control we haven't seen from him before. But I think it's more, I think it is a more selfless act and an act of goodness in that I think he is recognizing that he has this in him, this, this, that he has the capability. I think that up until this point, Doc has not recognized himself as someone with the ability to come in and assert control over a situation. You know, he's just a knockabout guy trying to figure this shit out. Not, it doesn't even seem like he's trying to do anything about it. Just kind of wants to understand what the hell is happening. Where is Shasta? And again, you could almost argue that all of this is almost a, a controlling boyfriend metaphor of him running around that leg going, where's my girl? Where's she at? Who is she with? Um, but I think that the first three quarter or first two, two thirds of this film, excuse me, first two thirds of this film, he's a detective in the, uh, the kind of the, the Marlowe mode, the, uh, the Chandler mode of, you know, he he's he's pretty much ineffectual in the end. There's a there's a a sad reality and truth to the fact that probably he's not going to be able to make any kind of difference, and and the world will just get more and more evil, and that will be his ultimate discovery, is that there's something so much more vast and beyond him, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. There's also there contrary to that, there's the more Hammett style detective, who cowboy style walks into a town, sees the corruption he doesn't like, burns it all the fuck down, and then turns back around and walks out, uh, able to enter, uh, well, that great Peck and Paul line, able to enter his house justified because he knows he's gone in, he's asserted his idea of justice and his idea of morality, and he did it, fuck the consequences, I'm out. Now, I think that while Doc never gets quite to uh, Sam Spade mode, I do think that in this final third, I think that this revelation with Shasta, uh, this revelation of what she confronts him with, I do think it pushes him to a place of recognizing, I have it in me to want to assert control over things. But maybe not the right things. And I feel like this last stretch of the film is him asking himself, what if I tried to direct this as something good? Maybe I'm reaching, but I, I feel like this is him going, it's not a dream to me, it's him going, what if I directed this at the thing I should have been paying attention to the whole time, which is this goddamn case about a man 
and his family, his, his wife and his daughter who can't be together. I've been over here worrying about my ex old, who's just been fooling around and letting herself get used by, you know, uh, this, this evil land developer when right in front of me, right in front of me, I'm so concerned about wanting to restore what was that here is a family that I could be, I could have restored, I can restore this family back to what it was. I'm not going to be able to save me and Shasta. I'm not going to be able to save myself. I'm not going to be able to save Bigfoot, but I can bring this family back to the way it was. And that, that counts, that matters. And if I can take both my skills and my flaws, my need to control and my ability to do so, and I can direct it at this one thing, that's worth it. That's what, that's worth it. And I feel like that that's why this scene again is such a skeleton key and so important is not only does I think, do I think it unlocks these aspects to Doc's character for us, I think it unlocks them for him. And I think it pushes him on the road to where he goes to, to recognizing, Oh, this was never the Wolfman case. This was never the Hepworth case. This was always the Harlingen case. It's the one thing I haven't been paying attention to. And it's the one thing I can save. The, the question I would ask that I, I agree with everything you say, but oh boy, what happens to Doc after this movie? Because, well, because that's the he question. He's lost in the fog. He's also had to make some compromises, sure, um, to get to Koi. Um, and the thing I wonder is, does Doc does Doc become Bigfoot? Like, is Bigfoot in some ways? You know, I mean, we talked about him being the Funhouse Mayor, but is 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 Bigfoot in some ways Doc's future? I've thought about this. I've, I've wondered about this. I wondered if, because it feels like to me, Bigfoot feels like Doc, like 20 years in the future, 15 years in the future, maybe. There is a souring and a bitterness, but, well, let me finish it. I'm, I'm doing that thing where I'm stopping a sentence and I'm pivoting away. There is a sourness and a bitterness to Bigfoot that I think is inherent vices victim uh is it is it, bigfoot is loss unrecoverable unredeemable irredeemable it, it, there there is no path forward out of his uh his atrophy uh for for bigfoot and i think that he recognizes that and i think he i think bigfoot recognizes that he's a coward i think he knows he's a coward and of course this is 2020 so it's easy to make that connection he's a cop there is a there is an inherent again no pun intended cowardice because he is willing to be part of a, of a structure of iniquity and control and social devastation and even when that that force joins hands with the golden fang to kill the man he loves his own partner he will not turn against it he will outsource his vengeance to someone else now the difference though i think the one difference the one thing is that i don't think that bigfoot ever had in a, in, in a way he laments this in a way that feels like a joke in the pancake scene uh, because we think he's craving fame, but I think maybe it means something different. There's that moment where he goes, no Cielo drive for Bigfoot. Yeah. No middle, no movie of the week TV rights for Bigfoot. I think one of the things he might be lamenting is there was never a Harlingen case for Bigfoot and that there was never a moment for him to find an outlet for this. There was never a moment for him to go, this is one good thing I can do. This is one thing I can save. And I think it's actually, I think it's very much the entire reason why Bigfoot does, or uh, Doc does not understand at the time. I think it's the reason why he loads Doc's car full of heroin is Bigfoot knows 
the Harlingen case is, 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 is still a pressing matter. Bigfoot is the one that calls in this scene to say, where are you with Coy Harlingen? Yeah. And is not only upset when, when, when he realizes that Doc is not investigating the Puck-Adrian connection because Bigfoot just wants him to kill those two men. He's angry that Doc has not been pursuing the Harlingen matter. He's angry because, and I think that that's why he loads Doc up with that heroin is he knows Doc's going to need leverage. Doc has no money. Doc is a loser. Doc lost their respect the first time he ever paid rent, in the words of Crocker Fenway. And I, 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 I think that the, the crucial difference between these two men is that Doc Sportello got a Harlingen case. He got a case in which he was able to take both his, 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 his positives and his negative his his need to control and he was able to direct it at something and do good and i think that that is something that bigfoot laments when he says no cielo drive for bigfoot and i think it is why bigfoot is stagnant and i think it's why doc is in that ambiguous fog where we can't say that that's where he's going to end up that's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. anyway that's my thought on the subject because i will I, I i tend to be i think a pretty cynical bastard but when it comes to this film when it comes to this movie i try so hard not to lose my innocence and i try to err on the side of goodness because i i want to know that doc is out there i want to know that doc's done one good thing and that one good thing has been enough and that's uh, you know the the um the idea you know there's no um what does Bigfoot say? No, no movie of the week for Bigfoot. Yeah, no movie of the week for Bigfoot. Um, and you know that, that relates back to the novel in this sense, which is that you know the novel is, and this is this is not reflected as much in the film, but the novel is filled with references to movies and references to yeah. sort of noirs and things like that. Loves John Garfield movies. Yeah, it's a very, um, I mean, it's a very pinch and thing to do, but um, but like the, you know the the, the novel is. And by extension, the story is steeped in the referentiality of its genre. And the film does that just by virtue of the kind of movie it is, right? Because you're just immediately re- reminded of Big Lebowski and Long Goodbye and, you know, all you know, Chinatown, all these things, um, you know, without them having to necessarily overtly acknowledge them. Um, so it does exist in this, you know, this is the movie of the week, basically, that Doc gets and Bigfoot will never get, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's, that's interesting. And, and in that sense, obviously the fact that it's a movie, it has the happy ending and, and we have to accept that as a happy ending, even though, you know, we also accept that it's a movie, you know? Well, it's a moody ending. There's, there's certainly a mood. I don't know if it's purely happiness, but it's certainly a mood. And, I, and going back to what you said, I, I, I do think that that is why Bigfoot consumes that pot, is he realizes you're not in any kind of meta sense, obviously, but yeah, Inherent Vice is Doc's movie of the week. Doc has his CLO drive. Bigfoot does not. I think that's why Bigfoot consumes that platter full of weed. Is like, This is the closest I'm going to get to feeling like Doc Sportello. And, in, and I think in Bigfoot's eyes, by the end of the film, Doc Sportello is a hero. And if this is truly my reflection, if I act as he does, if I do as he does, maybe I'll be him. And again... That's, that's why I think Bigfoot is such an important character. I keep calling this scene a skeleton key that unlocks the film. And I, I think that's true. But I also think as a character, Bigfoot is that. He's the guy that constantly unlocks what this film is and what this film is supposed to mean. Mm-hmm. And given that's a lot of work to do, and it's probably one of the reasons why, as you said, this is not the movie where you, there's this onslaught of people coming out going, boy, oh boy, saw this one on, uh, on uh, Hulu the other day. 
It's a firecracker, this one. Rocked. <laughs> I don't know if anyone came out of this movie going, yeah, rocked. Uh, I wish they did. Maybe you and I. I think, well, maybe you and I. But uh, yeah, I, 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 truly, I truly think that. I, I, I get the idea, and I think it's, it's possible as Doc is driving away in the fog, and we don't know how this ends, that maybe he does turn a few wrong corners and becomes Bigfoot Bjornsson. But I think the one thing that protects against that is he had his – take it back to what you said at the beginning. These two out-of-work losers, they're going to stop this murder uh, on Cielo Drive. Doc has had his Cielo Drive. Doc has had his movie of the week. Doc has had his Harlingen case. It may not be in, it may not be a lot. The Golden Fang still exists. Donald Trump is still going to become president about 50 years later. Uh, the world is going to continue to spin on into evil and disarray and chaos. But you know what? You know what? There's a little girl who is going to experience the little kid blues a couple of years later than she originally was going to have to. And which is kind of dark and kind of small. But to me, that's why Doc is ultimately a good character is he knows all that, but he's willing to risk his life and put everything on the line. After Shasta challenges him here, after she challenges him here, and after Bigfoot in this scene nudges him back at Carlingen, he recognizes that maybe it's worth risking everything for that one little girl and her dad to have a couple of more good years before this bring down bummer of a decade really kicks it into high gear. And there's something, again, I use this word, that's magic. That's magic to me. And that, that's a word I use about in relation to PTA's films a lot magic. And I think maybe I've answered my own question uh, as to why, why this film drew his attention more than uh, I kept saying against the day, but it's actually, it's, it's, it's Vineland that is a much more PTA styled narrative, which is, it's basically the same narrative as this, but with an ensemble cast, which would feel obviously more of like a PTA, but it I think maybe later, right? It takes place later. Right? I, 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 I guess read the day. Vineland, yeah. Yeah. It takes place. It takes place. I believe a little later. God, it's been like, it's like Vineland could be the sequel to it. <laughs> but um, yeah, it takes place a little later. It's, it's kind of like, I feel like it's kind of like Pinchon's American pastoral in a way. But, um, boy, we're getting real pretentious now. Um, but that, to me, maybe that's the answer. Maybe it's that magic. It's that magic. It's the little kid blues. It's, it's risking everything. As, as a guy who we know is a father who loves kids, just the idea of, of, of being, able, being able to embrace your better angels and manage your devils and save a kid from the little kid blues for a little while longer, that seems like the kind of magic that would attract someone like him at least at least does to me and Koi's family is really i mean i'm trying to think this isn't something i've i've, I've rewatched the movie with an eye towards so i don't know if this is accurate but i mean they are kind of the only characters in the film or his wife who has changed right i mean th this notion of everybody kind of staying the same and everybody kind of stuck in their cycles she's the one she got new teeth she she gave up drugs she she's a drug counselor now She's a drug count. Like, like you get the sense, like that is, I think maybe the only character in the movie who has progressed. Yes, who has they, left the system. Yeah, they've progressed. There, there, there are other characters who change, but for the worse because they refuse to let go. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but yeah, I think the Harlingen family is the the Harlingens are the only people with. I mean, it's kind of wild that Pinchon would do something so on the nose. I mean, what's Mrs. Harlingen's name? It's Hope. Her name's mm -hmm. Hope. Her name is literally Hope. But uh, 
of any character that undergoes any kind she, of she changed her teeth, which is a huge deal in, a, <laughs> in, the, in the Thomas Pynchon cosmology, right? Because he was always like incredible. Oh my, you're right. He had for those who don't know, uh, in one of the few pictures we have of Thomas Pynchon when he was a younger man, uh, had awful teeth, and according to uh, according to biographers, that he was deeply, deeply insecure about that. Fact. Yeah, I mean, this uh, this is the thing that. Even before we had that picture, I remember that was that was a thing that everyone knew. I and mean, he had mentioned it or somebody had mentioned yeah. it. Yeah, bad teeth. People are a big thing. And here's a whole movie about dentists. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. I never made this. Oh, my God. Bill has blown my mind. I have never made the connection. Really? The I mean, it's, bang, it, it's, so, it's so obvious because <laughs> there is a fucking cabal of tax cheat dentists helping fund the Vietnam War as a means to bring heroin to America and literally destroy the soul of this country and everyone in it. And I'm sitting over here going, ha, dentist, that's funny. That's funny, dentist, because no one likes a dentist. Never once sitting here going, oh, yeah, I bet you know who, I bet you know who hates dentists? Fucking Pinchon has probably dealt with a lot of them. That yeah. is, oh, my God. And Doc wow. himself, right? <laughs> Isn't he a former dentist? No, no, Doc. Doc just works at a doctor's office. He he. But he's, he got the, he's got the gas, right? Well, it's because he because he he uh. In the, if you remember in the book, he shares an office with a doctor feel good type. Like I'll right. give you a B twelve shot, doctor. So he's got access to all the goods. Yeah. But uh, no, he's not a dentist himself. But that's where he gets the nickname. Uh, you know, Doc Sportello. But but he knows about he knows about uh. The, the gold and you're the right weirdly he knows about has, uh copper industry uh, alloys yeah it's god wow what we are going down a wormhole this is see this is the kind of pinchonian wormhole that he he leaves there hoping someone is gonna find so like oh boy wow you know how i said uh one of my favorite things is <laughs> seeing this film through someone else's eyes you know a lot of times it's like you know what if you view shasta more like this and what if you view this character as that and it's kind of heartrending and adventurous soul stirring i love that this episode is like you're out pinch on's got these fucked up teeth isn't that interesting can, can we connect it to dentists and now my i am never gonna watch this film now without thinking of that goofy picture of him when he was in the navy or in college or whatever it was and going my god this truly is a horror story for him because that's another thing we've been talking about in the show is that in 2020 how much more inherent vice feels like a horror film because yeah. of how how little things have changed in this film's world and the world we are in now. Um, Christ, we have a present who literally has a golden thing tower for a home base. Uh, but yeah, my God, for Pinchon, this is a horror story. It's nothing but crazed, uh, sexually depraved, coke-addicted, America-destroying dentists. That's incredible. <laughs> That's absolutely... Bless they your heart. Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> they roll with Nazis. My God. Oh, Bilga, this has been an episode. And we even got a cat cameo. Thank God. Thank God. I have to say, this has been this has been an absolute blast. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you, Thank you so much for doing, as I said, the nerdiest endeavor you are going to commit yourself to all quarantine. <laughs> Talking about dentists, Thomas Pinchon's teeth, the nature of PTA sex scenes, Bigfoot Bjornsson eating stuff, CLO Drive. What's better than that? That's magic too. Before you go, do me a favor. Tell everyone listening where they can find your work. Um, the best place to find me is at vulture.com, uh, which is where you know most of my writing appears nowadays. Um, 
and uh, and in the pages of New York Magazine, they'll you know when it shows up in New York Magazine, it will show up on Vulture.com eventually. So, um, but yeah, everyone, I wholeheartedly, massively demand that you read Bilga's work if you haven't already. I'm probably insulting all of you because you probably already do, but I I highly highly recommend it. It is so enriching, and as I said at the beginning, he is one of those writers. Uh, when I read when I read your work, I could read your work and not watch the films. I could read your work and be just as fulfilled and and uh, pushed and driven to think as I would by watching the work themselves. And that's I think a very very special thing, especially now in this day of just listicles. And my God, bringing it all back to the beginning, this is a man who will give you a Rosetta Stone for a listicle where you have to literally take it apart and rebuild its comp uh, component by component to find an actually really nuanced and incredible and piercing review of inherent vice. Like that, that's some wild Pinchonian shit right there. And I applaud it. Bilga, thank you again. <laughs> thank you again for, for letting me machine, machine gun all of that at you. Thank you everyone for listening and please swing back next time where myself and a very special guest are going to take another three-hour tour with Shasta Faye Hepler. And still we will push onward, past the end's beginning, ever onward, to the tar-black core of sadness that lurks in Inherent Vice's deepest recesses, and Doc and Shasta's too. What is it Doc and Shasta said today? C'est la vie? <laughs>